open your Bibles with me for the first time to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel. It feels like it has been an eternity trying to get this sermon series started for a variety of reasons. But here we are, we're finally at the day, and I cannot think of anything more exciting to begin preaching through at this point than John's Gospel. I want to read with you this morning the prologue to the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, down through verse 18. And then our sermon this morning will simply serve as an introduction and a survey, if you will, of the entire gospel that charts the path ahead for our verse-by-verse exposition through this wonderful landmark. Let's pray, though, before we do. Father, we are about to read your word, and we ask that you would bless it. Holy Spirit, carry it into places of our mind and our heart where no man can go. And may the word do the work. May the word written reveal the word living, the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it find a lodging place in every one of us. Father, I pray that this study through the gospel of John would transform this church. That it would transform lives. Father, there are some who are not believing here this morning. Some of our children who, because of the length of the study, no doubt will come of age and of time of understanding through this study. Save them. Save others who may be holding on to a false profession of hope. Reveal Christ to them. Strip away any false pretenses and cause them to come to know the risen Son the Word of God, the living Word. For those who know your Son, may they be strengthened, may their love grow exponentially for the Son, and may we all rejoice in who you are and in what you have revealed to be true in this glorious good news book. For it reveals the good news that is Jesus. We pray this for his sake. Amen. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. 
He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Have you ever witnessed something so spectacular Something so overwhelming that when you try to describe it to someone, you conclude your conversation this way. You just would have had to have been there. Not because you don't believe what your eyes saw. But because what you saw was so incredible that it simply defied human words and human ability To describe it accurately, who can describe a West Texas sunset in its fullness? Who can describe the Rocky Mountains? Who can describe the joy of holding your child for the first time? Who can accurately describe those things? Who can describe... The beauty of pictures that come to us from telescopes that float far in outer space. That testify to the handiwork of God in creation. No words accurately convey the the power and the majesty of those moments. Well, this morning, the Apostle John knows exactly what that feels like. Because after 21 chapters, 879 verses, the Apostle John has to conclude his gospel this way. Are you listening? In John chapter 21, in verse 25, after trying to describe Jesus for all of that time, says this, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which... If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John knows. John has just tried to describe the indescribable. And that is how he concludes his gospel. If all the things that Jesus did and if all the things that would be necessary to describe him fully were written down, the world could not contain the volume of books that would need to be written. John not only wrote the book of Revelation, his gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
John's gospel is so powerful that in the early church, a man by the name of Tatian, a student of uh, Justin Martyr, who was one of the early church fathers, if you will, theologians and philosophers, so valued the gospel of John, he found so much uh, uh, help in the gospel of John that he developed a framework by which all the other gospels were hung onto the gospel of John. In other words, the gospel of John was um, laid out as the skeleton and all the other gospels filled in details around John because he found it to be such a magnificent gospel. The book is called the Diatessaron. And he assimilates all the other Gospels and he harmonizes them around the Gospel of John. And the muse of John's writing, as you quickly discover, even in the prologue, is the glorious Son of God. And I just wonder, how much of our lives revolve around the glorious Son of God? Well, we know what we know about Jesus, and we tend to, you know, kind of just regurgitate what we know about Jesus and, and, and try to live off of others' experience of Jesus or what they tell us about Jesus. But how much of our life is spent revolving and orbiting around Jesus Christ himself, and every day and every moment is a new opportunity for us to gaze freshly upon the Son and to live our lives in light of who he is. That's what John wants us to do. It's like Nebuchadnezzar peering into the fire after he had attempted to burn Daniel's three friends, and he comes up with a conclusion. He says, but how many did we throw into the fire? Did we not cast three men into the fire? But behold, I see four. And the fourth one is like the son of the gods. It was Christ, the pre-incarnate form, I believe, in the fire with Daniel's three friends. So John, too, cuts through the tribulations of this life. He strips away the, 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 the unnecessary things of life in order to reveal the one, the one who is the Son of God, who has gloriously overcome this life. Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three, in this world you will have tribulation, but fear not, I've overcome this world. Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his riches and all of his power, has that stripped away. And the moment that he beholds something, words defy him to describe. Didn't we throw three men? Yet I see four. And the fourth is a glorious being, a glorious person. And so for the entirety of his gospel, John writes in order to so fully describe and to convince you as to Jesus' identity that you will fall in line with what he declares to be the purpose statement in our study of this book, John chapter 20, verse 31. Why would John go to such lengths? Simple. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. A commitment John was keen to maintain throughout his ministry as in his epistle of 1 John chapter 5 verse 13. We read this, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know 
that you have eternal life. John is convinced that if Christ is revealed and it, and it if Christ is revealed as he really is, not the Jesus of your imagination, not the Jesus of what somebody told you, but the Jesus of the Bible as he really is. John believes as you must believe, brothers and sisters, as we must be convinced that if Jesus is preached and if Jesus is revealed as he really is, that the beauty and the power of his saving person will be experienced as the Spirit of God draws all men to the Father through that glorious revelation of the Son. How are men and women going to be saved? How how are your loved ones going to be saved? That is a serious question. There is no more serious question. How are you to be saved? From your sins that are taking you without repentance and without faith in Christ. That are leading you to eternal damnation and judgment in hell. How will you be saved? Jesus answers in John 6, 44, No man, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. How is that 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 we will come to salvation? How is it that we will be saved? Because Christ will raise us up. But before Christ can raise us up, Christ himself must be raised up. The Father, brothers and sisters, listen. The Father draws sinners to salvation, sinners to himself, only by the exaltation of his Son when his Son is high and lifted up. There is no other way. There is, as Phil Johnson mentioned in the first hour, there is no marketing gimmick. There is no program. There is no shortcut. There is no stealthy way to convince the world uh, to the Father except through the exalted and lifted up Son of God. No way. There is no lifestyle evangelism. There are no clever gimmicks. It is only when Jesus is lifted up. It is only when Christ is preached. It is only when the Son draws men and women through Himself to the Father that people are saved. And that is why this book, and this book in particular, must be preached. Because here, not that the others don't, but here in a particular way, Christ is exalted. Christ is lifted up. Christ is made much of. Christ is esteemed above everything else. Now, John is, without question, one of the most familiar books in all of Scripture, even to unbelievers. I, I mean, every unbeliever who watched football in the 80s and 90s saw the guy in the end zone with the sign that said what? John 3.16. Everybody knows about the book of John. But brothers and sisters, we must preach and we must understand John with the heart of John. Not just to cherry pick a few verses out of John 
and hope that that does the trick as some sort of shortcut to a superficial Christianity. We need to preach John. You need to understand John like John understands John. Why? Because John was given this book under inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a reason. And you need it. And I need it. We need a full, unobstructed, blinding view of an exalted, majestic Son of God, God Himself in the flesh. Then and only then is our hope of salvation fully present, fully available. Jesus says, In John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, one of his favorite designations for himself, the Son of Man, so must he be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. What must be exalted in understanding of Jesus Christ? To tell somebody, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Yes, raise your hand. Repeat after me. That's not salvation. Why? It says nothing of Christ. And yet that seems to be the essence of American Christianity. We're not so sure about Jesus. We just know we want heaven. But brothers and sisters, heaven is not heaven apart from Christ. It must be Christ who is lifted up. It must be Christ who is exalted. It must be Christ who is embraced. It must be Christ who is understood. John so loves Jesus, he wants you to love the Jesus he knows. And so this gospel is a journey in John bringing you to know that Jesus as best as human words can describe him. Someday, be it here or in heaven, we will realize the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Someday, we will realize that at one point or another, if you are truly a believer, there will be something that grabs you and draws you to look at Jesus in a fresh way. And it is just astounding to you. And dare I say, it will happen over and over again. We'll realize the beauty and the glory of Christ. And by the way, I think when we all get to heaven, we're all going to realize how deficient our view was. When we see Jesus for the first time face to face, we are going to realize just how pathetic our understanding in this life with our limited faculties really are. And when we see Jesus, we will begin to unceasingly tell to everyone who will listen, whether here or in heaven, about the glories of the Son of God, high and lifted up. You realize that's what heaven will consist of? The praises of the people of God for their Redeemer King? We we won't have enough time in all of eternity to tell of His glories. We'll never grow tired of it because we will understand in that moment just how glorious and high and lifted up he really is. I think there are so many misnomers about heaven. Growing up in the Bible Belt, growing up in a 
family, extended larger family who whose roots were rooted in southern gospel music that sings a lot about heaven and most of what I heard about heaven in those songs and on the occasion I still hear some of those that tends to focus on, man, what, what the streets of gold are going to be like and what the mansions are going to be like and reunion with grandma and grandpa is going to be like and all those things. And I'm sure those things will factor into some small part of our thinking at that point. But brothers and sisters, when we see Christ, nothing else matters. He will pale everything in comparison. When we see Christ, we are created in our physical birth and in our new birth to worship him. And John is painting such a picture of him that, that, that it cannot help but, but infuse and enthuse both our worship of Christ now and then. Heaven is eternal, right? And the worship in heaven will be eternal. Why? Because the Son is eternal and we have been created as eternal beings. Why? To worship Him. It will take that long. If that's even a correct way to speak of eternity. We have been created as eternal beings to worship an eternal Son for all eternity because it will take eternity. John prepares us for that moment by telling us, look, look, behold the Son of God. All of your eternity, Christian, is tied up in the one of promise, Jesus Christ, the person of promise. Everything is tied up in him for us. Listen to Paul who echoes John Cinnamon in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God. How many promises has God told in Scripture? You can't count them. Neither can I. I, I don't know. They are so rich and so many. Notice what he says. For as many as are the promises of God. That's a lot, right? We've established that. Notice this, in Him, meaning in Christ, they are yes and amen. Therefore, also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Every promise God's made, you know what the fulfillment of that promise is? Is Christ. Think about all the promises of God that we talk about taking to the bank. All the trite little memes you see on Facebook that, you know, God promises, God promises, God promises, God promises, God promises. How many of those actually lead you back to Christ? Paul would say this. Every promise you find in Scripture finds its ultimate fulfillment, not in the thing itself, but in Christ. Look to Christ. So that the greatest request that you could pray this morning. And listen, I I want you to pray this. I, I want you to take what I'm about to say. And I want this to be real for you. As we go through this book. I don't want this just to be like, oh, I've got to go hear John again. 
I want it to be real for you. And the greatest prayer that you could pray this morning and every day is the same prayer and the same request that the Greeks make to Philip in John chapter 12. When they came to Philip, one of the the apostles, one of the disciples, and they say to Philip, are you listening? Sir, sir, we would see Jesus. Where is he? Show us Christ. Point us to the one. Point us to the one in whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. Lead us to Jesus. What if we as a church over the coming years, if the Lord tarries His coming and doesn't take us home, what if our prayer every day was, John, show me Jesus. I need to see Christ today. I need to be reminded of your promises that are all fulfilled in him. I need to know my hope is in that Savior. Show me Christ. John's single focus is to present the one in whom all that God has said and all that God has done. Every promise, every work is quite literally found in the apex of Jesus Christ. You want to know what the apex of history is? It's Christ. Teach that to your kids. Make them really countercultural. Cause them to see Christ as the point of everything else and around him everything else flows. Teach your kids that he is the apex of not only history but eternity. You cannot read John. And find anyone or anything more important, more exalted, more pressing than the worthy Savior, Jesus Christ. So as I mentioned, the purpose this morning is to simply introduce you to John's gospel. To lay a framework, to get a glimpse of what John is writing for and what he hopes to accomplish. And so this morning, I, I want to just present to you, that was the introduction. But I want to just present you two goals. That as you read the Gospel of John, you'll find these two goals everywhere. And I want you to leave with an understanding of these two goals so that you're prepared for next Sunday and the Sunday after and the Sunday after. Number one, John has as his goal To present a high Christology. An exalted Christology. A a doctrine of Christ. A theology of Christ that drowns everything else out. John wants you to be overwhelmed. Sensory overload. To be pressed in every part of your being. To be stimulated to see just how great Christ is. Let me tell you how that varies from the Christianity by and large that's presented today. You're the sinner. And Christ flows around you. Christ is there to serve you. Christ is there to meet your needs. But you're the center. Churches have sadly left 
this exalted view of Christ and they've made mankind the center of everything they do rather than Christ. And that leads to endless possibilities of problems. Because when you remove Christ from his central place, when you remove the primacy of Christ, when you remove that high Christology, nothing else is going to matter. Your gospel will end up being false. Your hope will be false. Your, your, your methods will be of this earth. And Christ will not be exalted, nor will he be saving. Because he is so dumbed down. No more pressing matter in John's mind than to lift Christ up as the guiding landmark and principle of all of Christianity, of all Scripture. He does that more magnificently than I think just about any other book in Scripture. Again, it isn't that Christ can't be seen in the other Gospels, that Christ can't be seen in the Old Testament. It's none of that. Those are all true. He is. But John has a particular way as the disciple whom Jesus loved, perhaps the one who was closest to him, and I'll just say it, the one who was closest to Jesus. Because who's the only one left at the cross at the end? It's John. Who's the one to whom Jesus commits the care of his mother whom he loved, John. That's saying something. And so John has a unique perspective, I think, about Jesus that presents him as this high and lifted up one. John understands Jesus. How does John do that? How does John accomplish this goal over and over again? John starts, are you listening? John starts by showing the glory of God. He wants you to understand how glorious God is. How magnificent His holiness is. How excellent are all of His attributes. And then John shows how Christ as the Messiah fits that description. You see, John is not an apologist. John's not here to argue with you about who Jesus is. John is here to paint a picture of who God is and say, now, who fits the description? Jesus. And only Jesus. John is here to show us the majestic God, the holy God, the transcendent God, and and all that he does and all that he will do. And then he turns around and he says, after explaining it so perfectly, he says, now does anybody, can anybody think of anybody around that fits that description? It's got to be him. Nobody else fits that. Nobody else does that. He doesn't start with Jesus and then try to convince you that Jesus is God. He starts with Messiah and says the Messiah is Jesus. The promised one is Jesus. And so throughout John's gospel, we find evidence of the exalted Son of God. Look back at just the prologue that we read this morning in chapter 1. Look how exalted God is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That right there tells you a myriad of things. He's eternal. 
We learn very quickly in verse 3, He is creating. We learn that in Him resides light and life. And in Him alone come light and life. We learn that He comes to in love to proclaim that life and light to the world. We learn that men have rejected Him, and in spite of their rejection of Him, God has, has saved some. He has chosen some and saved them. They didn't come by their own will because they had rejected Him, but in sovereign power, God brought them. We learn that Jesus Christ is the full revelation of what grace means and what truth means. John is just teasing you with truths about Jesus here. He's going to flesh these out. We are going to learn who God is, and you are going to be led to a point where you cannot come up with any other solution than to say Jesus has to be the one that fulfills that. We find in verse 14 that vital Revelation, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Do you hear that purpose in John? We we beheld his glory, and this glory could only be the glory of God. And we saw it in Jesus. We find the exalted nature of Christ in forgiving sins. We all know John 3.16. Our children know John 3.16. I love to hear my boys, when they were younger, recite it. Now, Julianne, I love to hear them say that truth. That Jesus came as a revelation of a saving God, a powerful God, and He saves. We learn the power of God is manifest in the miracles that he does in nature. And who is the one doing the miracles? It's Jesus. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus demonstrating his omniscience. Now listen, some people would say, yep, when Jesus came to earth, he laid aside all of his deity. Then how did he know about the woman at the well? He knew everything about her. Why? He's still God. He didn't lay aside his deity. He just chose not to exercise it demonstrably at all times to all people. But he did not lay aside his deity. He exhibits his omniscience in John 4 to the Pharisees in John 8. He reminds them of his eternality before Abraham was, who for them was the beginning of all things. He says, I am. Unlike the other Gospels that begin with John, I mean, begin with time, look at John. If you read Matthew, if you read Mark, if you read Luke, they all begin in history, in time, at a point. Uh, Matthew and Luke with uh, Jesus' incarnation and the birth of Jesus, Mark with John the Baptist. But notice where John begins. Way out in eternity past. He doesn't begin in time. He doesn't begin in history. He he, he goes to the Lord of history. He starts with the one who wrote history. 
He starts before there is any such thing as time. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who fits that position and that place. We learn about his exclusivity in John chapter 14, where Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no man will come to the Father but by me. You see, we really don't love people. We really don't care about their souls. If we will not be very specific and very clear about this exalted Jesus. You must lead them to Jesus. You must show them all that John shows. You must not retreat in the name of sympathy or compassion or understanding. You must boldly declare to them Jesus is the way. Not a way. He is the truth and he is the life. And unless you come through him, you will not come. You cannot come. Not only that, you don't even desire the God that is Jesus if you don't come through him. In John 11, Jesus reveals his power over death. You remember Lazarus? He's dead. He stinks. His sisters are going throughout through the Jewish Rituals of mourning and Jesus shows up, not late, always on time. Why? Because Jesus' purpose there wasn't to keep Lazarus from dying. It was to reverse Lazarus dying. Why? To show his power. To show who he is. Lazarus come forth and Lazarus came forth. Jesus reveals who he is and he reveals his power in his words uh, through his discourses, through his sermons. You know, John excludes a lot of the narrative. John excludes a lot of the stories and the catalog of miracles that Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain. John doesn't go there. John is more interested in Jesus' teaching. Not that those are not important, they are. And John brings some of those in where it's helpful. But John is more interested in hearing the straight up truth claims that Jesus makes. And John wants you to hear them too. John's not here to give you warm fuzzies about stories of things that Jesus did. John's here to put Jesus in your face. And say, behold the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other things are true. The other things are right. The other things are good. But you need to see Jesus, not hear a story. And I fear sometimes that's what we uh, do uh, with, with our children at times. We, we teach them Bible story after Bible story after Bible story. But are you talking to them about the point of the Bible story? Or do they think Jesus is simply a genie in a bottle? That's what American Christianity has come to think about Jesus. That's why we have rancid 
things like the prosperity gospel. Jesus has just become a genie, a means to an end, the, the means uh, to the fulfilling the American dream and your own self-worth. Not what John has in mind. John assumes the deity of Christ and he focuses more on the discourses of Jesus that reveal his deity than any of the other books. Again, John is not concerned with trying to persuade those who so many times chose to reject Jesus. John's not going to argue with them. John's not going to soften for them. John is going to present the facts and it is take it or leave it. But if you leave it, there is no salvation. John lays down the gauntlet and he sobers those as to who it is that they are rejecting. And so here for just a moment, let me detour and make a note about the virulent rejection that is also part of John's gospel. As a believer, it's hard to fathom people wanting to reject Jesus. Yes, that's hard, isn't it? We seem, we love him, we know the power of Christ to save, and it just is stupefying when people say, no, we don't want him. And yet the whole world around us is. They seem, there seems to be a growing hatred of Jesus. And John, having presented this majestic and high and lifted up Savior, is also quick to point out those who reject him. In fact, if you go back to our prologue this morning, look at verses 10 and 11. He was in the world which he created, and the world in general was made through him, and the world, meaning those who occupy the world, did not Know him. How do I know this is people that John is referring to in the last instance rather than creation itself? Because nature always knew who Jesus was. Whenever Jesus spoke, nature never stood up and said, you know, let's debate that for a moment. I'm not sure you have the control over us that you think you have. When Jesus said, wind and waves be still, they were still. When Jesus said, Receive your sight, sight was received. When Jesus raised the dead, the dead responded. When Jesus did anything in the natural realm, it always responded to him. But what did not respond to him were sinful, fallen human beings. The world, those who occupy the world did not know him. And then verse 11, it gets worse. He came to his own, meaning the Jewish people, and those who were his own, the people of the law, the people who had the prophecies, the people who should have known who God was and why Jesus fit the role of God. Every one of them should have known, but what did they do? They did not receive him. It's not just those pagans, as in Romans 1, 18 through 25. It's also the religious, as in Romans 2. They all rejected the Son. In fact, it's such a disgusting rejection of the Messiah that when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you remember what they wanted to do with Lazarus? Kill him. How demented and warped is it? Let's mourn for Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. 
Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. Let's kill him. It's absolute insanity. Why? Because they rejected the Messiah. Absolute insanity. When you reject the Messiah, when you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you cannot get anywhere other than utter insanity. Brothers and sisters, that's the world we live in today. And that is why we cannot retreat from the core of our message, which is Christ. You can clean them up. You can reform outward behavior. You can give them a list of do's and don'ts. You can medicate them into compliance. You can do anything you want. But unless Christ is presented and unless Christ is accepted and embraced and worshipped and believed in for who he is, nothing has changed. Nothing will change. Jesus was rejected. They were scandalized by his words and John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, Jesus works his first miracle at Cana, turning the water into wine. They grumble at his provision in John chapter 6, verse 41. Like the Israelites rejecting manna, they reject his provision. In John chapter 6 and verse verse 66, don't read anything into those numbers. They were added later. But in John six sixty six, it's kind of fitting. They all depart from Jesus, and Jesus has to actually turn around to the twelve and look the twelve in the eye and say, "Do you want to leave too?" That that's how dividing this concept of a right understanding of Jesus is. He has to even ask the twelve, and by the way, one of them did. And by the way, ten more did, not completely, but they did go and hide. Only one, John, stayed by him. His family rejects him in John chapter 7, verse 5. His physical family, his mother, his half-siblings reject him. They think he's mad. They think he's crazy. He was accused of being filled with error in John chapter 7. He's accused of being possessed, a demon possessed in John chapter 7 and verse 20. They accosted the very people Jesus came. Again, uh, what are we about? We're about health and healing and we want wholeness among our people. Oh, John 9, wonderful. Here's a blind man. Let's heal him. No, let's go attack him. They weren't happy that he was seeing again. They were angry that Jesus is the one that made him see again. Why? Insanity. Jesus talks about who he is. He gives seven signs to prove it throughout the gospel. He also gives seven I am statements that coincide with those seven signs. Jesus in his high priestly prayer reveals who he is. And so John has been so overwhelmed by this high Christology, this high view of Christ, he has to write about it. Second goal And here's where a high Christology is not meant only for the seminary classroom to sit and discuss the the wonderful attributes of Christ. Here's where it becomes intensely personal. Because not only does John want you to see a highly exalted Christ, John wants you to know throughout the gospel there is a non-negotiable call 
to believe in this Christ. George Whitfield, who was used as an illustration, ironically, in the first hour, was famous for one line in his preaching. You must be born again. You must. Brothers and sisters, let me say to you, not quoting Whitfield, you must be born again. You must. You have to be born again. There is no alternative for you. Hell or heaven hang in the balance. Your life or your eternal death hang in the balance. And when we say eternal death, what we need to note is that we don't mean soul sleep. We don't mean we just cease to exist. We don't mean that there is no, um, there is no, uh, uh, liability for our rejection of Christ. No, it is very much life, but it is life in torment. It is life in judgment apart from the mediator who is Christ. Someone recently mentioned hell in that context. Hell is not the absence of God. Hell is the presence of God, the holy judge, without a mediator to stand between you and his wrath. And that only mediator is Christ. Say, well, well, you mean God's in hell? You bet he is. He created it. Psalm 139. If I go into the heights of heaven, you're there. If I descend into the depths of the earth, behold, you're there. It's not that God just puts us there. It's okay. We're done. Go live your life. It's that your sin is constantly being heaped upon your head and it's judgment. But there is no Christ. To stand between you and the wrath of God that you deserve. You must be born again. Or that is what you will face. And John says the only way to the new birth is through Christ. And so there is a non-negotiable quality to this call to believe in him. You see John's not a poet and a storyteller. John is a prophet. We often hear John, oh, the apostle of love, and he is the apostle of love. He mentions it more time than any of the other writers. But do you see what love does? Love lays out hard truths. Love teaches the truth. Love points you to Jesus, even though it's not always comfortable to hear. John is a prophet. He's thundering. Jesus must be seen and he must be responded to. And John, there is no room for debate. There's no room for doubt. Jesus is the Messiah and you must accept him or else. You must be born again. It's like Jesus to Nicodemus. Where did Whitfield, by the way, get that phrase? John 3. Nicodemus, marvel not that I say to you, you must be born again. You must. Straight out of Scripture. And so John, in the Gospel of John, breaks down into three parts. And you can remember these as we close. There's the revelation of Christ in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, that serve as a general outline. These 18 verses serve as an outline of what is going to be expanded for the rest of the book. The rest of the book falls into two categories. There's the confrontation with truth and the rejection of truth in chapters 1, verses 19 through chapter 12, verse 50. 
This section deals with those who saw Jesus, those who heard Jesus, those who who, uh, observed the truth claims of Jesus and yet failed to believe. Again, Jewish people, familiar people, religious people. I don't care who you are in the room this morning, that this would include myself. Familiarity does not foster belief. Just because you're familiar with Jesus doesn't mean you believe in Jesus, doesn't mean you will believe in Jesus. That is a work of the Spirit of God in you to create belief. It is coming to Christ as He has revealed Himself in the Gospel. And so in this first section, they reject the very source of life, the very source of protection, by rejecting the good shepherd himself. The last half of the book is from chapter 13, verse 1, through the end of chapter 20. And in this section, we find those who resign themselves to the truth, to the facts, and they actually believe. The rejection is largely over. And now we find a period of ministry in which those who choose to stay with Jesus and follow Jesus are spoken of. And Christ is presented and he speaks specifically to them in the second half of this book with with astounding power and comfort Jesus couldn't give to the masses. There had to be a separation because Jesus can't pronounce the blessing and the hope and the comfort and the assurance that's coming beginning in chapter 13 on all the masses because not all the people in the masses believed. John shows us in the second half of the book that by Jesus' obedient life, by his death and by his resurrection, the reasons why the followers of Jesus need to be comforted. I have been recently reminded again through um, some songs that Weston uh, introduced me to of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort? One of the questions in the Heidelberg Catechism is, what is your only comfort in life and death? It's Christ. Who loved me, who gave himself for me. Christ is my only comfort in life and in death. Jesus, by that life, comforts believers in the last half of the book. And so while John and while too many people have gone to the gospel of John, again, the gospel of the apostle of love, the one whom Jesus loved, they've misinterpreted it as a book of soft invitation. Do you want to? Would you? Maybe? Kind of? But Jesus doesn't speak that way. Jesus speaks in language of a non-negotiable call, a summons, a demand to see him and to believe him. It's non-negotiable. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. You must be born again. You must believe in the Son of God. He is Messiah. He is King. He is God. Believe him. Remember in multiple accounts in the Gospels of the mountain of transfiguration, there's a voice from heaven. 
This is my beloved son. Do what? Hear him. Listen to him. He's told you the truth. That's essentially the message of the Gospel of John. Here he is. Listen to him. Believe him. For John, the problem is not a lack of evidence. John says, listen, there's more evidence than the world can contain. Here's the problem. Rebellious hearts. Sin. It's not that there's not enough to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. It's that you don't want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And all the facts in all the world will not convince someone and turn them and their heart of disbelief into a heart of belief. That is something only God does, according to John 1 verse 13. But he will do it, and he will do it when Jesus is lifted up. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. The power of the word, both written, as we heard in the first hour, and the power of the word living, as in Jesus, here in this second hour. Brothers and sisters, let Colonial Bible Church, for the next year, in the next hundred years, if the Lord lets us stay around that long, let us be committed to the exaltation of the word. Both written and living. So that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. All men that come to him only come to him because he has been high and lifted up. You must believe. You must be born again. There is no ambiguity. It is either Christ or death. Choose Christ. Believe Christ. Follow Christ. Your soul depends upon it. Let's pray. So we take a moment to reflect, brothers and sisters, the issue is not whether you can see, but rather will you see, because you can see, and will you believe in seeing. You can't miss Jesus, the sight's too glorious. The hymn writer says, look you saints, the sight is glorious. You can't miss him. He's too massive to be missed. These things are written, this picture of Jesus is given so that you will come and see for yourself. Will you? As we embark on this study. Father, we pray that during the course of this study that you would so exalt your son through your word. That men and women, boys and girls would believe in him. And that in believing in him, have life in his name. Show us Christ. Sir, we would see Jesus. Show us your son, we pray. And make him, in the days ahead, the centerpiece, the head, the king, as he is the ruler, the hope, the comfort, and the assurance of this body of believers and nothing else. Remove everything else, Father, that you might put Christ 
as all in all in us, both personally and corporately, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.